Welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. And as usual, this is a Tuesday episode. So with us today is our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren. Hugo, how's it going? I'm doing great. I'm, I'm feeling a little self-conscious, though, because we're filming this episode for the very first time. Um, I know people have been dying to Did find out. Did you think about your wardrobe? You know, I didn't because I'd forgotten that we were doing it. So I, I don't know. You look a little better. You got a nice sweater on. Uh, yeah, but that was solely... You know what it was? I'm so sick of wearing my giant parka that just feels so heavy and uncomfortable right. that I just went like five layers today instead. This is a warm sweater. Okay. That, that was my point. That's yeah. brilliant. Okay. Yeah. Um, we have a lot of stuff we're going to talk about. We should say, by the way, we are at PNT Knitwear, yep. um, your bookstore. Um, and it's a somewhat dismal Monday morning here, but we're, we're in a good mood. Yeah, 180 Orchard Street between Houston and Stanton in New York City. Um, so we have a lot of stuff to talk about. I'm going to just list the topics on top, and then I'm going to ask you a couple things before we get into the main part of the podcast. But we're, we're talking about Amazon's drone delivery program. Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking about an idea you have for giving Trump the third-party line. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's dangerous, but um, that's the way you, the way you travel. Um, <laughs> we're going to talk about sort of uh, work and mental health. With I think you're tying in this Ezra Klein column from The Weeknd. It's, it's I'm tying together an Arthur Brooks piece from last week, a Derek Thompson piece from last week, and an Ezra Klein piece from this weekend. Okay. And they all kind of fit together in my mind. Okay. Um, we're talking about we're, we're like a week late with the New York Magazine etiquette issue, um, but I think that's fine. It's, I bet we do not have a huge New York Magazine overlap. readership overlap, so probably so no. So maybe it's news to our, to our yeah, listeners? I had no idea. We're popular in Israel, apparently, so um, maybe, so maybe it hasn't reached there? Israel. Well, maybe, maybe they will now. Um, we're going to talk about the Super Bowl, which is coming up on Sunday, Kansas City versus Philadelphia. Well, just real for me, you worked in New York Magazine for how long? I worked there twice. I worked there four years the first time and five years the second time. No, so two years the first time and five it, years the second time. It felt like a cultural institution in like the 80s and maybe even the 90s. It feel, is it totally just an anachronism that's on the way out or have they reinvented it enough to survive? I, I think it's definitely more than an anachronism on the way out. I think they, what they've done is that they have really, they have a great talented staff and they have a lot of enterprise and I think they are making a go of it in an environment that's not that conducive to the kind of magazine making that they are really good at. But yeah, but they I think it's I think it's an outlier. I think they it's 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 better than almost anything else out there as a magazine product. I, I, and I would say this. I, I find that there and maybe I don't I don't actually read it that much. So I look at the infatuation for food stuff. But um, by their thing being we're snarky. Right. What it does do is whenever they call I mean, of course, sitting here, whenever they call like the advice is always don't talk to them. Right. And then like one time I remember I cooperated with something because the advice was to do it way over. And I knew better and it was fucking terrible. It was like a hit piece. So like, Interestingly, I, I, I do though, think that if, if, if they care about it all, getting people to talk who uh, have something to say, right. maybe stop being quite so asshole-ish. Okay. Well, well maybe, maybe. But you we'll, know, with that said, I don't ever read the magazine, so maybe it's totally changed. Well, I, I mean, I think the uh, you've probably read articles. I mean, they, you know, we had David Wallace Wells. He's no longer oh, yeah. at New York Magazine, good. but he's at the Times now. But we had well, who's that guy? We had another guy on who wrote a book about um, WeWork. I think we had that guy on. Oh yeah, um, he's so, a New York so, Magazine reporter. Yeah, they have yeah. excellent writers and reporters. Reeves, Reeves, Reeves Weidman, Reeves Weidman, yeah, good guy. Um, so anyway, your recommendation that'll be the last thing. Yeah. So let's, okay, now after all this preamble, I'm still going to have more a couple, preamble. More, more preamble. Good. Um, so I want to follow up. There was a, there was a um, we talked about Brian Johnson last week, um, yep. who has this 
kind of uh, very intense health regimen and he wants to live forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and we talked about, I wouldn't say the pros and cons, but like, what do we, what do we think of that? Yeah. So um, I was reading the information, which by the way, I think is really also very good. Um, and mm-hmm. um, they are not snarky like that. Nope. Um, they're, they're uh, become a, it's an excellent publication. Yeah. They've really, they've really jumped to the top, I think. Um, so they had a, I'm just going to read the, the, the lead of an article they did. Um, when Courtney Room wakes up in his Los Angeles home, it's time to freeze, shake, and dangle upside down. The co-founder of venture firm M13, or M13, I guess, takes a dip in his cold plunge, shocking his system awake, before stepping onto his bulletproof vibration plate, which shakes him, getting his blood flowing. His morning routine crescendos into a bat-like state. Some bad writing right there. I think crescendoing into a bat-like state doesn't quite work. But anyway, as he hangs upside down for two minutes on his inversion table. So my question to you, Bradley. Yeah. Those are three things. First, I don't think you do any of those three things first nope. thing in the morning, right? No. Nope. But which one? Just rank them in order of least likely to. So, so the the least least likely would be the first one, the cold plunge, for for two reasons. One is. I don't like being submerged in bodies of water in general. Right. I don't go in swimming pools. I don't that. go in the ocean. Right. I don't go in bathtubs. I don't go in hot tubs, really. Okay. Um, so the idea that I would take a cold plunge yes. is fucking insane to right. me. So okay. there's no way. Plus, even if I did like going in bodies of water, it sounds horrible. Okay, cold plunge, no. So the, the hanging upside down. What if someone told you the health effects were like dramatic and real? I think... There are things Fuck I'm it. willing to do, but I think that one I'm not. Okay. So the second one you but would But hang do. upside down, maybe I would. Yeah. Would. I don't know what the benefits are or why one would do that. But like if you said, it has to be really material, but like this is as important as not smoking cigarettes or something like that, then maybe I would hang upside down. But but my I'm suspicious of that okay, one. Okay. So you cold plunge you would no not way. do. You'd consider the the vibration or no? Yeah. Well, just only in this. I don't even know what it is. It just seemed like something at the gym. Seems so. like it might make you sick though. But I, I don't get too nauseous. Okay. Um, so <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just since I go to the gym all the time anyway, that seems like okay, something within the realm of what I do. Last bit of preamble. Yeah. Um, I have a slogan for the podcast. Okay. Very simple. I was just thinking about it on the walk to work this morning, um, as we're talking about thinking about the topics. So we ready? Mm-hmm. Politics, tech, and the pursuit of happiness. I kind of like it, actually. I have to say, it, like it encompasses you, right? It does because politics and tech is sort of the wh- how we describe this podcast. But the reality is, it's like two thirds of this podcast, or f- maybe less even. And I think pursuit of happiness does cover a-, a lot of the other stuff that I'm interested in. What we talk about, so sure, I'm not okay. approving it, but I will. Let's put it on the table. Okay, it's on the table. Um, let's talk about Amazon's drone delivery program. Yeah. So I just have one question, and I'm going to let you run on it, but. Um, we've been hearing about drone delivery for, I don't know, a few years now. Mm-hmm. Is it just never going to happen? Is no, like it, is, it, it is. That, that's kind of why I wanted to talk about it. Because okay. the article you sent me, which I think also was maybe in the information. Um, uh, there, yes, it was. Was about how Amazon's drone delivery program has been an unmitigated catastrophe. Uh, they can't get permits from the FAA. As a result, the way that they have to do things is incredibly inefficient. Uh, in some town, I forget what state it was in. I think it's in Texas, right? Yeah, it was Texas. It's usually or Arizona. The stuff's always in Arizona. Um, where there was some community meeting. Oh, it was Texas. It was College Station. Um, and there, they had made less than 10 drone deliveries in their program so yeah. far. So, But to me, okay, that's Amazon. Fewer than 10 to, houses. I think more than Fewer than 10 homes. So, so Amazon doing a particularly bad job, fine. But the the broader question really is because you do see others like Zipline and Google and others doing it successfully. Um, 
I do think it will happen. I do think it should happen. And I think the real key here, and this is going to get a little technical, but um, there's a regulation called BVLOS, Beyond Visual Line of Sight at the FAA. Well done. And Monday morning. Yeah. I had some <laughs> coffee. Um, and this is really the crux to the whole drone issue, right? Which is right now the pilot still has to be able to see the drone while it's flying uh, for any type of commercial purpose, right? You don't have to for recreational, but you do have to for commercials, I understand it. Um, has to see the drone. It has to be kind of within your ability to, you, it can't go so far away that you don't have eyes on it, right? Um, and it can't just be like a remote camera. You have to have eyes on it. It's, it's my understanding. Okay. So um, Bob knows more about this than I do, so we should check with him. But um, once the, but the technology is there where there's no reason why having it be on your line of sight can't be just as safe. And I think hopefully the FAA is moving you know, pretty close to that. So once that happens, it's a regulatory sea change for the drone industry. And I think drone delivery opens up considerably after that. Now, the question is where, right? So we're sitting in the middle of Manhattan. No, where they going to come to like the fourth floor and hover outside my window? Like, that doesn't make any sense. That'd be awesome. Man. But um, suburbs, rural areas, you know, uh, some of it makes sense. Um, my students, we, one of the, the campaigns that we assigned last semester was a drone delivery startup. Your students uh, at Columbia School. Yeah, and um, they came up with a really cool campaign plan, and they were smart. They focused it all around counterintuitively old people in Boca Raton. And their theory was like medicine, or? medicine, but then also just like, you know, they're old people and they could just, as long as I can just get to their front porch or whatever it is, a cup of coffee or a banana or a burrito could be there. Banana. Yeah. I don't know how many old people Seems like costly. burritos. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I think you probably want to have a little more, a little more scale than that. But anyway, um, so to me, the Amazon thing is just more indicative that Amazon's just done a particularly bad job in this case. They've also done a very good job in a lot of other things. But that regulation but, you're talking about yeah. sounds like a pretty limiting factor, right? I mean, it's huge. Like, like, yeah. so what do you, so I guess they just have like one depot or something in the middle of some town and then they, they just deliver into the neighborhood. I mean, it, it couldn't, if, if you have to keep your eyes on the actual drone, that's, I mean, almost, yeah, well, that's, that's the problem. Yeah. You, right. can't, you can't do very very much with it. So I think the FAA, I think, has given a few exemptions here and there. And look, when it comes to drone regulation, the FAA has actually been pretty proactive, unlike uh, DOT, which is the parent agency of the FAA on autonomous vehicle regulation. So I think they've generally done a pretty decent job on all of it. But but the Amazon thing really is, is indicative of a much larger issue, which is the entire industry is being held back, just like autonomous vehicles, um, by the need for a regulatory change that the FAA has not yet done. Have you seen many drone delivery startups like come across? Yeah, yeah, you know, we've never invested in one. We generally really have we only have one small drone investment, and that's it. Um, I've always wanted to do the Brink one. Yeah, Yeah. I've always wanted to do a drone delivery investment, and so I look at all of them because I'm interested in it every time. And so far, the economics aren't there. Uh When BVLOS happens, I think that might change. So Mm -hmm. my my hope is to do one in the next year or two. Um, but but I say that every year and I never get there. Well, it seems like a textbook case of where you know Tusk strategies kind of uh, yeah. Ex- except is- in this case, and this is always the challenge of the federal government compared to the states, right? Here you have you know massive companies, Amazon, Google, DJI, all already lobbying the FA and everything else. I can't make much of a difference at, in that. Just like I really can't make much of a difference at the at DOT in the autonomous car fight, where our skill set really becomes an advantage where the arbitrage is really there 
is when you're dealing with something in lots of states or lots of cities at the same time, right? right? So the a really big company can sort of focus on one regulator, one decision point, and probably, you know, they'll do it more conservatively than we would, so maybe we'd have some ideas that would be different, right. but they're putting but the resources the into it, right? right? And right. I think where we excel is all of a sudden it's in 18 states at the same time, and you have to be able to manage and run campaigns in all of them. Um, so the, one of the reasons that I skew our, we skew our investments towards companies that have state and local regulatory issues is I believe we have a significant advantage over any other venture capital fund when it comes to that. I think we have much less so in the federal government. In fact, one of the reasons that we don't do biotech is the FDA process for approving drugs is very bureaucratic and very regulatory, but the biotech funds know how to do it, right? right. They figured it out. I don't think I have, once in a while, we, we do get brought some like weird kind of anomaly FAA thing, but but out, I mean, FDA thing, but basically, um, I don't feel like we'd be materially better at it. So um, that's one of the reasons I think we haven't dove into, into drones, where in other cases we might say, well, if we can change this regulation, the market could take off and we can change this regulation, so let's invest. Um, on this one, I don't have as much confidence. So... Um Let's talk about uh, Donald Trump and giving the third party line to him should he not get the uh, Republican nomination. Would you explain, this is obviously right up your alley just in terms of all these various issues, both electoral and sort of strategy and all this. Mm -hmm. So just explain, so let's, the, 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 the starting point is Trump gets beaten in the, in yeah. the Republican it's primary. So, and that seems at the moment a likely outcome anyway. Um, possible. So, I mean, there was polling over the weekend that, was really all over the place, right? So I saw, I forget which which publication I read it in, but in one poll, it showed DeSantis and Trump head-to-head in different states among Republican voters, and DeSantis was, like, way ahead. Right. But then, you know, there was a Washington Post-ABC poll yesterday, Trump versus Biden. Trump was beating Biden. Um, and there was another article or poll that kind of measured Trump's support among the base, and it really hasn't diminished much at all. But he, here's the premise, and this is also my, my daily news column, which I think will be out tomorrow, so it'll, it'll, the time will be good with this, um, which is here's what we know about Donald Trump. We know he is constitutionally incapable of ever admitting or accepting defeat, right? True. We know that he believes in nothing. He doesn't care about political party. He doesn't care about ideology. He doesn't care about people. He only cares about himself and his ego. And that's come to the destruction of our country and our world in many ways. But I think in this case, it may actually be an opportunity, not a problem, right? Which is, so Trump's now declared as one of the candidates for the Republican nomination in 2024. The Republican Party as an institution clearly does not want Trump to be their nominee. There was a story, I think, in the Times this morning about how the Koch, Koch family brothers, is yeah. really now going to... Can you say brothers when one of them's dead? Um, sure, Brother? we can say whatever we want. Yeah, I guess so, whatever. <laughs> so the Kochs are going to focus on um, anti-Trump uh, candidates in Republican primaries. Right. So you see the establishment moving away from Trump. And so the question is, if they're able to engineer it so that Trump can't win the Republican primary, depending on when Trump would drop out, um, I think the opportunity exists in some states at least to run on a third party ballot line instead. Some states have sore loser laws that don't allow you to do it, but this is going to be based on the intricacies of each state's uh, legislation. It's going to be based on... There's sore loser laws, so if you if you can't get your major party's nomination, you can't do a third party? That's the idea, is to prevent exactly what I'm suggesting. Right. However... Every state does it differently. Okay. And if you're Trump, let's say you lose the first three or four primaries pretty badly, you could maybe pivot 
um, and sort of maybe your name's not on the ballot line yet or something like that. So, you know, I, I, and again, for, for this to work for Biden, it doesn't have to be in a lot of states. It just has to be in a handful of key states. So if you said to Trump, you were cheated, DeSantis stole this from you, this is wrong, you've got to avenge this, and we're going to give you a ballot line to do so, right? Um, I think it's a pretty fucking good chance he takes it, right? Because the, the one is admitting defeat and losing, not getting attention, and the other would be denying defeat and continuing to get attention. So, but, and for what purpose? For, for the purpose of splitting the Republican vote and, and reelecting Biden. Right. So if, if, look, we know that whoever the two nominees are, even if it's not Trump, Biden, DeSantis, even if it's two totally different people, it's going to be close. It's always close. The country is really split at this point, right? right. Um, but the question is, given that the Republican Party is so fractured between Trumpers and, I guess, non-Trumpers, that um, even though the non-Trumpers are also wildly conservative at this point, that if you're Biden, you can say, you know what, I have this unique lunatic in our lives, and I can take advantage of all of his disabilities and all of his frailties um, and manipulate his ego so that he is potentially on the general ballot line uh, in November in Michigan, in Pennsylvania, in Wisconsin, in Georgia, in Arizona. Pick your, your close state. If Trump gets, I don't know, 10% of the vote no, okay. on that third-party line, yeah. it's, it's game well, over. What, what, did, what did Nader get? He got 3%? I mean— Yeah, it was enough to take, take down Gore, right? right? So— um, and, and Perot was enough to take down Bush. And what, Perot got like 10, 17, right? I think. 17? Because I remember that was the high watermark. I, when I was—when Mike was thinking about running for president as an independent— you looked at the— and I, well, I also really want, this is in 2016, I really wanted him to do it. And I sort of made the case, well, we could be the highest uh, grossing vote getter of independence of all time. Kind of like, we might not win, but we could set right. this record. Mike was like, sorry. He was unpersuaded by <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah, I get to be Ross Perot. No, thank you. Yeah. Beat Ross Perot. So, so anyway, the, the, if I were, the whole point of the, of the column, the argument is, if I were team Biden, they're now raising money. Everyone that we're in the cycle, everyone's out there beating the bush. He's doing his State of the Union tomorrow night. The campaign season effectively kicks off after that. And they're gonna raise a billion plus dollars for, for his reelection. Wow. And look, you're gonna need a, a lot of that for operations, but here's the fallacy that they're gonna fall prey to, which is when someone is as famous as Joe Biden or Donald Trump for that matter. Paid media does very, very little to win you any more votes. Joe Biden has been in elected office for over 50 yeah, there's years. No He's the president. He's the vice president. He was a senator. There's no mystery. And another $100 million for or against him is not going to in any way materially change the number of votes that he gets or turnout or anything else. Now, that's not going to be what the campaign says because— the Biden team, even his staffers are pretty fucking old, right? Like the young people there are still <laughs> 60, you know, and they're more traditional, conventional, and they come out of the TV, a lot of them business where they make most money in politics is made on TV advertising, where you take a percentage of, of the total. Um, and because the total is so expensive, that's really where the money comes in. I think I've spoken before on this podcast, but generally the fact that TV advertising for politics is not particular has a low efficacy, and that because of the switch to streaming, um, it'll die out completely in five to ten years. Um, but I do think that um, Team Biden will be, you know, tempted to follow conventional courts because it's a very tempted. conventional. I mean, that's all that's yeah, all they've they're, done. They're, they're going to do people. But I do think instead, if you said, let's take the seventy million bucks. And through a third party, you know, we know someone wants to give three, three people each want to give us 25 million bucks for the DNC. Instead of it going to the DNC or instead of going to a Biden super PAC, put in some independent group and get a national ballot line. OK, right? so let, I, I think theoretically you've laid out a great sort of case for it. But 
let's go back to like Biden world and the 60 year old young guys who are there. Who is going to drive this forward? Like, it, is it even is it even remotely possible, given what we know about I mean, these things? They're, about not, they're not stupid. Right. Um, right. But they're very they, they're very conventional. They, they have a like, well, let's not fuck this up. We, we totally. You know, and, and by the way, they got it right in 2020. So right. maybe they know exactly what they're doing. But that's the reason why I'm putting this out there in the world, on, in this podcast, in the column. Right, right. Maybe someone there will, will see it. Um, and I, they're not going to listen just to me. But if it becomes a, <laughs> listen to this, a chorus, you know, then at least you quietly start doing some math, thinking about it, figuring out what states Trump could be eligible in despite sword loser laws, um, how much money you would need. So I, we estimated in 2016 to get Mike on the ballot in all 50 states uh, that it was a 50 to $70 million operation of signature collecting mainly um, would have been especially expensive because for a independent, you don't have any party infrastructure to rely on. Right? Right. So the reason doesn't cost that much for the others is a, they have permanent spots on the ballot and B, even for the candidates, the party provides a lot of that functionality for you here. It all has to start from scratch, but there was a group in 2012 called Americans elect. Um, it's seen as a failure, but I don't think it was. And they had kind of a similar idea of let's get a third party ballot line and run someone as an independent for president, they didn't run anybody because nobody wanted to do it, but they did get on the ballot in all 50 states. And in my view, that, that's quite an accomplishment. And what they proved is it can be done. And so my point is, why not create this third party line? You don't have to put a candidate on there at all if you don't want to. Or by the way, if Trump's the nominee, maybe you can get DeSantis or someone to go on there. I don't know. But it seems to me that if I'm going to spend 50, 70 million bucks, and if it's between TV ads that will have zero impact or the ability to split the Republican vote and win the general election, I would go for the latter. One more question on this. What factor, even tiny, is there that uh, you do this, Trump gets a third party and he wins? Really low, right? Because um, in this, the Biden would still win all of the traditional blue states, right? So then the question is, Trump would have to win um, other states to either A, win the general election, or B, more likely keep everyone under 270 electoral college votes, which would have sent it to the House of Representatives. That's never happened, I think, in reality. Maybe it did, like, in the 1800s ones. Um, but it has happened uh, on in movies and TV shows quite a bit. Um, and then the candidates in the House would be Biden, Trump, and whoever the Republican nominee were. Um, it would be the this current—no, it wouldn't be. It would be the next— class of members of the House. So in large part, depending on how the House election 2024 turns out, that really will help determine. Oh, it's the new class, right? It's the new class, but also it's by, if I have this right, it's by state. So it's each delegation gets a vote. And so it's not just the number of Democrats, number of Republicans, but it's the number of each within a state's um, delegation. That's terrible for the Democrats. Um, If it goes by state. Not necessarily, you know. Well, because they have all the population centers, but they have fewer states. Anyway. Yeah, you know, generally speaking, that that's right. But I think the, the question would be, are there some cases where, you know, there's a, a moderate Republican in some of these places that says, okay, you know, certainly not going to give it to Trump or whatever it is. Maybe. Anyway, this is all speculation and fantasy, but it's fun fantasy. Um, let's talk about uh, work, mental health. These uh, two articles from the... Uh, from the Atlantic and the piece by Ezra Klein. Um, why don't you try to knit these together for me, if you can? And yeah. then I have a bunch of questions. But but uh, but sure. there's the Arthur so, Brooks column. Yeah. So let me let me just go yeah, through go sequentially. Ahead. So Ar- Arthur Brooks, who is a 
kind of a happiness guru at this point, but he has, has a sporadic podcast, doesn't actually post very much, um, and a column for the Atlantic, and he does something at Harvard now. He has a um, book, right? He has a book. He has, yeah, yeah, he has a book, which I was a little underwhelmed by, but uh, his most recent book. But overall, I like his work quite a bit, and he really delves into happiness science to say, here are the things that we think will make us happy. Here's convention, but here's reality, right? And if you listen to this podcast or you read my columns, you know that's what I like. So a, a counterintuitive take of something that's actually that defies common wisdom. And so Brooks's point was the view traditionally was that workaholics are miserable because they're workaholics and they have nothing else in their life. His conclude argument or the, the studies that he was citing said it's the other way around. People who are unhappy are driven to Work become off, workaholics right, right. because it's an environment where they're successful in. It's an environment where they can usually, if, if you're really successful, you're the boss, right? So if I if I go to the, if I go home, who the fuck knows what's going to happen, right? I go to the office, uh, you know, I'm, no one's going to yell at me or give me a hard time, right? Everyone's going to do what I say. <laughs> um, you know, I decide the agenda. I mean, it doesn't mean that people won't can talk me out of things or whatever, or that we don't have an open dialogue. But at the end of the day, it's a controlled environment by me, right? The rest of the world, once I'm out there, like I'll take the subway from here to the gym, something crazy could happen on the subway, right? Something's crazy is not going to happen in my office. So all of life is pretty varied and unpredictable and work becomes a controlled environment. So anyway, the, the yeah. point is on this one that um, if people, if you see someone kind of becoming a workaholic and you're blaming the problems in their life for that, you really have to dig deeper and say, okay, it, it's probably life, the right? way around. Right. What is in their life that is making them want to run away from the rest of it? So that was the Brooks column. Right. Then um, Derek Thompson, and he did this both in a really good podcast the other day and in an article, um, made the case that productivity is among the wealthy is declining, and that's a good thing. Right. So the, the argument. So productivity is declining. So the argument he made was that when the one percent kind of really became the one percent, and the income inequality really widened and started called the nineteen eighties. Um, the one percent did something very strange, which is with their um, money, they bought more work. They actually started working even more because their goal was, well, I want that house, that plane, that yacht, whatever, that vacation, whatever it is. And so I'm going to be even more competitive at the workplace to make even more money to buy these things, because if I buy these things, it will make me happy, right? And what we've seen in happiness science over the past couple of decades is the opposite, right? What we've learned is, you know, materialism doesn't really make you long-term happy because it's not sustainable. There's the hedonic treadmill where, you know, you buy something, you're excited about it, you feel good about it. But the next thing you buy to feel good about it, it's got to be more expensive and even nicer. And you feel good about it for a lesser period of time because Bigger you get used friends, to right? it. And so eventually, you know, this is why you see all of these people who are incredibly wealthy and seem pretty miserable is because they all subscribe to the belief that if they could just buy enough stuff, it'll work for them. And the reality is that's not what it is. Relationships matter. Having a sense of purpose in your life matters. Those are the kinds of things that ultimately build sustainable happiness. And so um, perhaps... The decline now, so, the Brooks, so uh, I'm sorry, Thompson's point was we're now seeing um, a decline in hours put in by people at the top. And what does that really mean, right? And I like to think at least that it is a recognition by people um, that, you know, what is actually good for you is not necessarily conventional wisdom um, and starting to sort of move the other way and say, you know what, if I have a little less money, but I have a little more time, 
um, that actually makes my life better. I mean, I know that with some of my money, I, I buy time as much as I can. I, 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 any task that I don't have to do that doesn't require me, I pay someone to do because it takes it off my plate. And whatever I do with that time, even if I'm taking a nap, is more valuable. You did have 11, what, 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds over at your house? That could have been outsourced. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just been a That's his son's correction party, institution. by the way. Lyle had a birthday party on Friday night. Uh, he turned 14 and had... 10 of his friends sleepovers. So it was 11, 14-year-old boys and, um, you know, various people coming in today to repair structural damage in the apartment. Um, <laughs> okay, wait. I want you to bring in... I, I, Ezra, I, your, your beloved Ezra Klein. I want you, well, my beloved Ezra Klein. I want you to bring in Ezra Klein. So as, Ezra Klein's point was that... Um, he, he was writing about the construction industry. Productivity in the construction industry. And his point was, even though we have all this technology and all these different advances in materials and everything else... Our, our productivity for construction is actually no better than it was 50 years ago. In fact, it's often worse. And why have we become stagnant when all logic would say it should get better? And one, you know, the, a lot of the arguments are the usual stuff that I happen to agree with, which is there's too much bureaucracy, there's too much regulation, NIMBYism, right? NIMBYism community review, environmental impact statements, seeker, all that stuff like that. But then there's also a point that he made, which is construction is significantly safer than it used to be. And so more time and money is spent uh, on various safety precautions. Like all those people like with the little flags yeah. so you can go and, or and not. It, and it doesn't necessarily increase productivity. In fact, it harms productivity, but the job of being a construction worker is a lot safer than it used to be. And I kind of felt like that choice was not unlike Derek Thompson's point about kind of the wealthy choosing to start working less and having more time, which is, you know, yes, we could probably maximize construction productivity like they do in China where they can build a hospital in three weeks, um, but people just die on the job site constantly and they don't care, right? So what we said is we value the safety and health and lives of construction workers sufficiently to trade an increase in productivity um, for their well-being, and I think that that's sort of a reasonable choice to make. I have one question about, and it, it stems mostly from the from the Derek Thompson uh, column because I, I was a little confused by that. You you actually explained it really really well, but the what I don't understand about the 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 wealthy work issue is like what exactly are they talking about when they're talking about work? Because like for example, like I think of work like the kind of work that you maybe want to do less of is the work where your time is taken away from you and is on behalf of somebody else, like your employees, for example. Um, at Tusk. But if for a lot of really like sort of well-off people, work is not, you know, they're not sitting there like over spreadsheets, like all freaking out or like trying to get a, like no, a legal you know what brief it is? in. It's not that. It's, it's the kind of cult of busyism, right? So like, for example, I mentioned 10 minutes ago that I was going to the gym after this, right? Right. So I go to the gym at 9.30, three days a week to work out with my trainer. It took me years and years to stop in my head concocting conversations. People I would put in, in my imagination run into the gym and explain why I was working out at 10 a.m. on a Wednesday. Right? It took me years to get comfortable with that. Because you just felt like because you were a I can, smarter, and right? because that's the best time in my schedule to do so. Right? But you felt before like you had to. It was yeah. Like, right. I felt like there was something wrong with me. Like you, you know, you're supposed to be this like hardcore professional guy. Like why? Gym, why aren't right? you in the office right now? And so I think that attitude mentality. Look, we see that at law firms 
firms, we see that at consulting firms, we see that at investment banks, uh, you know, kind of across the board of just driving people to work more and more, and it kind of becomes a culture. I mean, law firms literally make partner decisions based on billable hours. Billable hours are just the amount right. that you work. So um, I, th I think that, that it became a point of pride and status, um, and that's why uh, it happened, even though you're right, it's not like the people who are doing it are pouring over spreadsheets. Let's talk about... Oh, wait, uh, one, one, I just want to recommend. Oh, yeah. So Thompson had a podcast on this I listened to over the weekend that I thought was... Is that what you were looking at? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you so were we're checking your email just now? No, 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 no. Oh. I was looking up the name oh. of the guest. Oliver Berkman, author of 4,000 Weeks, explains our relationship to happiness and time. Um, and I thought this was an outstanding episode. If I sent it around to a couple of different people. And what I would say is a special... You didn't send it to me. I feel offended. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I'll send it to you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Oliver Berkman is great, though. The I know him. second half of the podcast, especially, I thought just sort of got into concepts and wisdom that to me felt incredibly accurate and incredibly universal. And so, um, listen to Firewall ahead of playing English. Well, they already Thompson, to Firewall. But, but if after Firewall you're done, he's at one another podcast, uh, check out that episode. It was like two or three episodes ago. Um, should we talk about New York Magazine very quickly? Sure. Um, I'm going to have to get over my PTSD of, of, of like working on stuff like this. Um, where you're like sitting around a big group of people and you're making these gigantic. At least lists. you never worked at BuzzFeed, like. No, at it, least I know, never. What did. kind of cat are you, or something <laughs> like that? It could, it could have been worse. It all does sort of eventually get there, but um, uh, I guess I guess what, what should I do? I should read you a couple of these. Corey nicely sure. picked I don't out even some. Know what they are. Of course. What's that? I deliberately didn't look at them so I could There's react. There's shit in real tons time. of them. There, how many are there? Like a hundred. Like, 140 rules about how to conduct yourself in New York City. I wonder how many of those I actually observe or agree with. Well, let's 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 try. Um, right. Uh, it's okay to email, text, or DM anyone at any hour. Yes. Yeah, okay, I agree. I don't think I'm. Um, don't feel bad about standing up in the aisle immediately upon the plane landing. Yes. Yeah. Fine. But I don't give a shit about it. Anyway, um, if someone tells you a story you've heard it before, you have two seconds to tell them. Um. Yeah, I think that's probably. So I guess right. that means that if you don't tell them within two seconds, you just got to sit there and deal with I it. I guess my head's still on the, the first one. Oh, sorry. Sometimes because <laughs> there's the schedule send function. Right. If someone's like on vacation or it's the weekend and it could clearly wait till Monday, I'll still write the email so that it's off my plate. And then you schedule. But it? I'll schedule it for that. So wow. the, there's a little bit of adjustment there you can make. Um, while not always feasible, it is morally superior to call in, take out, and delivery orders rather than using the apps. Why? No, that's fucking stupid. We give less money to the app companies and more directly to the place. Well, maybe, but then do, do the delivery people get the same kind of tips when all of a sudden now you're paying in cash and all of that? Like, well, I don't sure think you need do. to pay in cash. You can still pay on your you know, Apple I, Pay I, or whatever. I, I, I guess. I find, generally speaking, the people who somehow find themselves morally superior because they reject technology right. um, are just fucking deluded. Um, sharing parent advice is a no-win game. What do you mean? With, like, with who? I mean, I guess like with me or with like another friend of yours. I mean, I think that I'm not saying you do it. I'm just no, saying. no, no. Well, but I, I mean, I sometimes find it helpful to talk to other parents about their experiences. Um, I, I guess that I wouldn't agree with. Where I think it's probably right is when you start to say this is the way that it has to be done. Yeah. Because, but you have to avoid people like that, regardless. I mean. Yeah, for <laughs> sure, for sure. But but especially, you know, there's always that like couple of parents at, at the school who like I can't imagine who you're thinking of. They're like super busybodies. They like know everyone's business. They know like every date for registering for the you know camp for this or whatever else. And like you know, they're obsessed with where their kids go to college. And like 
that's fucking annoying. Um, but look, if if I had a problem with one of my kids and I thought you had relevant expertise that I want that, or if I just want, I've, I've vented to about you about my yeah, kids. Yeah. You know, you've done the same. So like, yeah. no, overall, I would disagree with that. Um, last one. Don't ever message someone K. Oh, I do that. I mean, I, T.Y. is usually the one that I do the most, right. which, is, which is thank you. Uh, you know, it's funny. I learned this from our friend Howard. So uh, Howard and I first worked together on the Bloomberg campaign in 09, and he's very brief in his emails. And he would use, like, T.Y. or K. or things like that. At first, I thought it was like maybe a little rude. Right. And then I kind of came around to it because, you know what, I, to me— not being rude is that I acknowledge pretty much every email I right. get, right. right? And what I don't, like, Corey, I didn't respond to your morning update this morning yet. It's on my mind, right? So, um, <laughs> but yeah. at the same time, I get hundreds and hundreds of emails and texts every day. And so to me, a fair middle ground is to acknowledge it, but with a K or a TY or something like that. Um, so from the millennial point of view, TY is okay. Just K Horrible. Why? The worst. The worst thing you could say. Why? That's a distinction without a difference. I don't understand that. Ty is 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 polite. Uh huh. K is just like right. okay. I, I heard you. I'll do what you want. Or I heard you. It's, it's, it's noted. okay, but I don't really care. What if I wrote okay. noted? Would that be better? <laughs> no, that sounds like an asshole. Don't you think? Yeah. Noted. Noted sounds like facetious. And what if you what if you wrote okay instead of K? That's that's better. It's better. It's better. I possible. like okay too. I just feel like right. it's that extra. Maybe o I could. Really maybe I'll I'll, 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 I'll strive to add the yeah. O into my communication. Please do, Bradley. Okay, we gotta we gotta wrap up here. We gotta talk about the Super Bowl. Um, So the question I have at the Super Bowl, because we're obviously not a sports podcast, although we do occasionally talk about it, is not like, oh, who's going to win or whatever. But like if you're just like a like like a like a like you're just drawn into the game, you have to root. Should you root for Philadelphia or Kansas City based on just kind of like cultural aspects? So I have a very specific oh, good. experience and answer to this question. Okay. I know you have you have Philadelphia roots or well, ties. Well, I went to least. college yeah. in Philly, and yeah. I, I like Philly, and I worked for the and mayor there. And you watch the Super Bowl in Philly, right? Right. So right. Um, I did the classic dumb rich guy thing, which was I invested in a bar, right? right. Um, and it's not quite a bar. It's a, it's in Philadelphia. It's a sports bar and restaurant kind of combined okay. with a gambling. A sports el- bar in Philadelphia, I'm already getting scared. Like, combined with just... sort of a gambling element to it. Oh. Oh um, it is designed by Steven Starr, who's like a super high-end restaurant guy. Okay. So that maybe gives you a little, a little more class, confidence in it. Um, but um, I invested in it because a guy named Paul Martino, who's a venture capitalist that we work with, it, he, but he's kind of like a venture capitalist who dreams of more being in, in the sports world. Um, he's the one putting this together. He came to me and said, hey, could, could you invest? And just if nothing else, I like Paul. He sends me deal flow. Sure. So I, 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 I wrote a check. Um, but... Um, got an email saying our soft opening is going to be the Super Bowl. This was maybe like a month ago. And I was like, oh, it'd be cool if the Eagles made the Super Bowl. I mean, obviously, I prefer the Giants. But if the Eagles made the Super Bowl and could watch it there. And so me and three of my friends from college are going to go down to Philly, hang out uh, a little bit in the afternoon, watch the game, and then come back at night. The so only wait, how real... should this affect my rooting, though? Like, if I'm trying to decide. So that's cool. I'm going to root for the Eagles just because I'm going to be in a bar where everyone's rooting for the yeah, Eagles. Yeah, you better root for the Eagles. Right. right. And I don't really give a shit otherwise. But here, my biggest concern is not if the Eagles no, win or get, lose. Yeah. It's getting out of there. Yeah. So, like, the, the restaurant will be nice because so you have it's, a helicopter. It, no, but I don't think we need that. But, like, the restaurant will be nice because it's a nice, fancy place, right? What I think I need is for the car that's going to take us back to Manhattan— I need it like 
idling right in front of the door with the back door open because the fucking riots, win or lose in Philly, will start immediately. Yeah, I'd um, consider like and near an get on ramp to the freeway. Maybe you just like take a bike there or something and just. No, I think get beat up along the way. I think I just dive in the car, slam it, and just tell the guy to just floor it to, okay. to get to the highway. But you don't have any advice on like so. I mean, you're. I mean, look, I, if I outside of this, the most fun player is Patrick Mahomes, right? right? And because he's battling an injury, yeah. if he does play like Patrick Mahomes and wins the yeah. game. Awesome. And, add, and add yeah. to the legend of Patrick Holmes. So all things being equal, I would root for the Chiefs. Recommendation of the week, last thing. Yeah, so Lyle and I went to a photography show yesterday. There's a photography museum called Fotografskia on 22nd and Park Avenue South. You sure you got the pronunciation of that right? No, I'm it's not a sure Swedish, It's a Swedish company, I think. Yeah, um, and... I think it's a for-profit institution, actually. And Although, shit, could they be making money? Look at the expense of that place. I don't know. It's the most beautiful building. It's incredible the way they did it. Um, and so they so had... on 22nd? 22nd Park, so literally right. a block and a half from our office. Um, and I'd never been there. I've walked by it, I don't know, 10,000 times. But I've never been inside, and I saw that they had a hip-hop over the last 50 years exhibition, and Lyle has become really, really into rap. He writes his own lyrics, everything else. So we went. Uh, and it was amazing. Like he liked the second floor more than the first floor because the second floor were modern. So you know he was excited about Tyler the Creator and Future and Kendrick Lamar and Travis Scott and you know all of those people. There was a Juice World photo that you know he was very excited about. Part, Juice World's dead. So did you know Juice World is dead? No, Juice no. World is dead. Okay. Um, but um, the first one you would have loved because it was the birth of hip hop, basically in New York oh, City, the best, yeah. in the nineteen eight or late nineteen seventies. Well, you sent me some of the 19- pictures. I so I sent them, you yeah. originally a picture of LL Cool J, well, Debra, Debbie Harry. It was it was, it was it was Grandmaster Flash, oh, Grandmaster Fat, Flash, Fab right, Five, yeah. Freddie, and, and Debbie, Debbie Harry from Blondie, Correct. which I thought was super I, fucking I, cool. But there were I sent you some other ones. Like they there was like one, actual friends. It was like such a great. So having a good time. Yeah. yeah, there was one of like Run DMC, but it was under the table, so you just saw the Adidas sneakers with no. Places. Um, there was a really good one uh, of the Beastie Boys in front of Radio City, where it's quite their first really big concert. Is that sure. when they opened for Madonna? That yeah, they opened yeah. for Madonna. That's, yeah. that's, ex- that's exactly what it was. Hold on now. I'm just going to have to edit this shit out, but I just want to find the other ones I sent you. There was a really cool one of, of De La Soul when they were like teenagers. Oh, an amazing one of Public uh, Enemy. De La Soul, God, I love them. Of uh, Chuck D and Flavor Flav walking on Bleaker and Lafayette. Uh, and it's a spot that I kind of spend you know time around. Anyway, oh, really great one of salt and pepper right here on the Lower East Side, <laughs> outside of a bodega, uh, like drinking chocolate milk or something. Um, so anyway, t- t- ton- tons of great photos. Yeah, he was really good one of future um, at a Waffle House in Atlanta with like his Ferrari in front of him. A really good one of Wyclef and Lauren Hill sitting on a rooftop of the project somewhere singing. So anyway, great great exhibition. Highly recommend it. Good. Till next week, brother. See you. Bye-bye.